Well, good morning. I am uh, told that baptism counts more if the water is cold, and so uh, Anna gets double credit this morning. We actually just did that to test Donnie to see if he was like a real baptizer, if he could handle uh, the, the cold this morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would open to the book of Judges, chapter 17. Judges, chapter 17. If you are a parent, I can bet on the fact that you have had the experience of trying to shuttle your kids to a birthday party or a soccer game or some event and having in your mind the time and the location of that event and showing up only to find that you totally blew it, right? You're the, the only one there and in fact the party's being held at some other park or roller skating ring or where if you have never had that experience you are going to have it two weeks from today if you show up here at 10:15. all right you're going to be the only one and you're going to awkwardly sit around trying to figure out who's going to make coffee because we will not be here all right they say i don't know who they are but they the theoretical they's tell us that you have to say something seven times for a group to hear it. So this is like time number two slash three uh, that you are hearing. We will not be here two weeks from today. We will meet as a church at Trailblazer Park in TR for our fourth birthday celebration as a church. We're going to do an outdoor service. We'll have brunch before, same time, different place. All right, 1015 Trailblazer Park, two weeks from now. Hopefully this gives you a great opportunity to try on your winter jacket for the first time, hang out outside, as well as invite some friends to accompany you. Uh, just as an encouragement to you, we will not be in the book of Judges. I'm not going to try to teach that outdoors uh, at a park. We're going to sing and celebrate and uh, learn from God's Word together and just have, have a great time. So nothing will happen in this building, no core classes, no main gathering at 1015. Everything will happen at Trailblazer Park. If you don't know where that is, directions will be on the website. All right, time number three. We're going to do time number four of this same announcement in about 30 minutes, 45 minutes, somewhere in there. All right, so we'll get to seven by the time, uh, by the time we get there in a couple of weeks. So we are transitioning into another portion of the Old Testament that. I like to refer to as the sticky pages of your Bible because they have likely not been pulled apart from when you bought the Bible. They are still glued together because this is not familiar sledding to most of us. The latter portion of the book of Judges is quite skippable indeed. If you've done a Bible reading plan, this is a portion you just kind of assume once we get out of the Samson story, we're going to zoom on ahead to some other territory. Paul tells us that all of the scriptures that are recorded to us are God-breathed and are profitable for a number of actions in our life. The passage, the chapter we look at this morning is going to cause you to question our brother Paul. Is this actually profitable for us? We're going to look at a, at a story about a fairly no-name individual named Micah, and his interaction with this Levite priest, and we'll put priest in air quotes because you'll question whether that's true at the end. 
Now, as we get to these types of narrative passages, I mean, the same is generally true about Samson's experience from chapters 13 through 16, though we have a a bit more teaching there in the scriptures and the New Testament authors that comment on Samson's experience that give us a sense of what we're to do with that passage. But this narrative passage is going to challenge us a bit and force us to really consider what do we what do we do like what's the application of this story and it really actually kind of zooms our attention out to help us kind of frame the entire scripture because not all of the writing in the bible is propositional do this don't do this the way a lot of Paul's writing is in the New Testament and most of us kind of post enlightenment folks were way more comfortable with this one, two, three, four, clearly do this, do this, don't do this. And when we get to narrative passages, the stories of the Old Testament, we feel a bit disoriented. If you're taking your kids to a museum and you walk them, and there's two ways to give instruction on what you're getting ready to do. There's the instruction, the lecture that you give them on the way in, right? Kids were going to the museum. You were crazy, all right? Calm your nerves down don't break anything, act like you're my child, or I'll wear you out somewhere, you know, out back before we get done with this deal, okay? There's propositional exhortation before you go into the museum, or there's narrative illustration after you've watched a crazy three-year-old run through the museum and just cause a ruckus, all right? Now, you watch the ruckus causer, and then you pull your kid aside and say, you see what that kid did? Don't do anything like that, all right? Everything that he did, avoid. Everything that he didn't do, you need to do. You can teach through exhortation and proposition at the outset, or you can teach through illustration after a story has happened. That's what we're going to do with the narrative passage of the Old Testament. We're going to see a crazy museum experience, and then we're going to reflect on it a bit at the outset. This is really challenging for us in Judges 17 to the end of the book because these stories are recorded with almost zero explanation. I mean, they're there and it just ends. You're like, what just happened? At least some stories in the Old Testament, there's some commentary that helped me understand what's going on. So my modest goal for us this morning, I want to read Judges 17 and ask the question, what can we learn from this experience? What can we learn from this story? Secondly, I want to ask the question, how is this story similar to the world that you and I live in? And then thirdly, I want to make five applications for us as we seek to be gospel communicators in the culture that God has placed us. So what can we learn? What are the similarities to the world that you and I experience? And then five points of application for our efforts to communicate the gospel clearly to those around whom we live, work, and play. First up, what can we learn? Let's begin in Judges 17 with verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. (laughs) What a start, right? Uh, We zoom in from the Samson story to this relative no-name 
We're introduced, he's from the hill country, and we're given this scenario that just doesn't make, it's just disorienting from the outset. It's a bit like you know, a magazine story that's attempting to kind of plumb the dangers of overindulgence of technology that says, you know, meet Bob. He's a 17-year-old that's watched video games and had an iPod since he was two, and, you know, yeah, yeah, and here's the, the dangers of this. Or, you know, meet Ralph. He saw a UFO, and he's not crazy. You know, you kind of zoom in on this one experience that's meant to be a caricature of something you know, far, far bigger. This is what Micah is going to play for us. We have really no reason for what's going on in the passage. We might speculate what's happened. It seems that he's taken some money from his mother, which is just a bad idea in general. Uh, perhaps it's this vague curse that's mentioned that causes him to want to give it back, the curse that's been uttered in his ears. There is a clear parallel. I mean, the same monetary amount in verse 2 is the same monetary amount that Delilah sells Samson for. So we see some connections between these stories. Though Samson's experience here is much, much clear, more clearly expounded than Micah's will be. But then in uh, verse 3, or end of verse 2, he says to his mother, uh, blessed be my... I'm sorry, his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became priest. Now again, there's so many what in the world is happening here questions about this passage. It does call to mind a much more familiar episode from the nation of Israel in Exodus 32, when Moses is being given the law, and what are the people at the bottom doing? They're you know, pulling their earrings to form a golden calf. There, at least, we're told that it's the people's impatience that drives them to form this, this God that they can follow, that can lead them. Here, we're not given any of that. We're not even sure what this statue is to be, why we need a carved image and a metal image, what's going on there. Is this to be a picture of Yahweh, the one true and living God, or is this a statue to some false god? Either way, the injunctions of Scripture are clear that it's out of bounds, whether they're making an image to a false god or making an image to Yahweh. We're clearly instructed in Scripture that these are the things that we're, we're not to do. And then Micah goes even further by beginning to build his own personal temple. It seems that the gods keep multiplying like gremlins in Micah's house. He makes gods who make gods who makes gods, and then he makes a place for worship and appoints his son as a priest. But then we're given a summary statement in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what is right in his own eyes. So whatever is happening in this, this story, we can bank on this fact that, like I was saying about the magazine article earlier, here's so-and-so, he's an embodiment of an over-technology culture, 
Well, here's Micah. He's an embodiment of what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. Okay, we know that to be true. Then let your eyes scan to the next chapter, to 18. Beginning sentence, what do you read? Very same thing. Chapter 19, what do you read? So even if there is some confusion about what's going on in these stories, we know that they are for us, they're to be a picture of what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And this is actually the same point that we're coming out of. Samson did the same thing. He saw a woman, she was right in his own eyes, so he took her. He saw some food, and so he ate it, even though it broke his Nazarite vow. He saw a jawbone, and so he just killed some people with it. He thought of a riddle, so he played it. He did what was right in his own eyes and ended his story blind and desolate. Samson's story, however, is applied to what we might tend to think of as a secular space. Fighting, women, food, right? These places where do what's right in your own eyes, end is destruction. Here, in this story, in Judges 17 and following, the doing what is right in their own eyes is applied to more specific to the, to the spiritual space. He makes a god, builds a shrine, and appoints a priest. Why? Because it seemed right in his own eyes to do those things. And a careful reader would anticipate that a similar fate is going to await Micah as that which awaited Samson. Doing what is right in your own eyes, whether it is in the secular space or the spiritual space, is going to end in destruction, which should give us all pause right in the middle of this chapter, repeatedly throughout the book of Judges as well, to consider and to ask, do I live my life based on what is right in my own eyes? Like if there were a, a summary application from this book, it is the, the proverb. There, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. So we, trying to walk and follow after the Lord, would be wise to question our wants, to live with a certain skepticism that what I want, applied to relationships, to food, to the religious space, probably isn't going to lead down a good path. And this is the path that Micah chooses. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place, and as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, well, stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. Now, this passage starts just itching for a Jesus juke, right? Bethlehem, Judah, somebody's coming. But unfortunately, the text doesn't give us any reason to assume that this Levite traveler is an embodiment of a godlike figure or a pre-incarnate Christ. We're really not told much about this person, other than that he's a, a wanderer 
who comes to Micah's house, which is, is strange. It's like a Levite looking for a job. Put me in, coach. In some foreign land. And Micah puts him in, which leads me to question, like, what happened to the son? I mean, did he just get booted because the Levite showed up? He was the priest. Do we have co-priests now? Or did we kick out the son and appoint this one? Not told. Verse 11, the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So what do we have in the conclusion of the chapter? A random Israelite with a shrine of gods in his home and a Levite priest whom he has appointed to lead this little worship house. Now, chapter 17 sets the stage for some really crazy action that's going to come in chapters 18 and 19. More on that next week. We're positioned to describe an even stranger series of events and circumstances. But before we get there, let's ask two, two questions. What did Micah get right? What did he get right in this passage? Well, it, we see at least four things that he gets right. One, the text leads with some type of repentance or restitution or reconciliation. We're not sure which, but he stole money from his mama, and it's probably a pretty good idea to settle up, right? If you took the money, whatever the reason is, to attempt to make things right seemingly makes sense. Two, there is at least in this passage a recognition of the need for worship. Now, I would argue that fundamental to all human existence is the drive to worship. In fact, you can't stop worshiping, but here we see an, an overtness to that worship. There's, we've got to give someone something back. You gave 1,100, I'm going to give 200, and we're going to fashion this God again. We don't know why, but there's at least a recognition for the need for worship there. Three, there's at least a sense of a care for the outsider here. There's a Levite sojourning in the land, and we have suspicions that Micah's motives may not be all that pure, but he does what the Israelites were instructed to do throughout the Old Testament, which is if you see a sojourner, someone in your land, you are to care for them, provide for them, show hospitality to them, invite them in. And then lastly, there is at least a, an awareness of a need for a priest, and even in, in the, the end priest, I don't know about the son, but at the end, we have the right priestly class that Micah chooses from. So he recognizes that this worship that he's offering needs to be mediated between he and God by a priest. So some sense of repentance, restitution, reconciliation, a recognition of the need for worship, a care for the outsider, and then a need for a priest. But what did Micah get wrong? There's a lot. Well, at least parallel the four, four things. His worship was totally misdirected. Unknown, false god, 
image of Yahweh, again, we're not told. But whatever the worshipful direction was, it was misguided, misdirected. Right motive, wrong object. Two, his worship was completely man-made. There is no concern here shown for God's directives or God's instructions, which, like, first of all would have said, don't build a shrine to gods in your house, right? Like, you, by this point, Israel shouldn't need to be instructed about those kind of basics, okay? This is, this is out of bounds. So our boy's just whipping up carved and metal gods, throwing them in his house with little concern for God's intentions for how worship should go down. Thirdly, his worship is completely here personal rather than corporate. Notice what he does. He stockpiles some gods in his house, and he appoints a priest for himself, for the gods that are in his house. Again, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know, like, out of bounds, bro. They, you, know, you worship Yahweh corporately, you worship him, his choosing. The priest mediates between God and a people, not you and your house with your shrine of gods. And then fourthly, his conclusion. Notice in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. His theology is totally wacky at the end of this chapter. The assumption is if I do the right things, if I have the right kind of theological trappings, a Levite, right, priest of Caius, as my priest, mediating worship, then clearly God's going to prosper me. Unknown false God, a man-made God, a personal God, and the connection of this worship with the Lord's blessing or the Lord's prospering. What we have in Micah is a picture of the weird spiritual creature that develops when man-made spirituality commingles with biblical truth. The toxic combination that comes when we refuse to submit to God's directives and rather pursue religion based on what fits our eyes. It's a creature, Micah is, that sadly, we meet time and time and time again in our modern American culture. We meet this Micah-like individual so often that pollsters since 2012 have put a label on this mythical sea creature. One who is spiritual but not religious, right? Spiritual but not religious. In 2012, the Pew Religion and Public Life Project found that one-fifth of Americans identified themselves as nuns, not religiously affiliated. Yet of that 20% group, 37% of that group said that they were spiritual, just not religious. Making this group a total 7% of all Americans which is, incidentally, a bigger category than atheists or Jews or Muslims. 
So walking your street and your neighborhood, you are far more likely to meet someone that says, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious, than you are to meet an atheist, than you are to meet a Muslim, than you are to meet a Jew. And interestingly, the vast majority of those who claimed to be spiritual but not religious were under 50 years old. So if you're in the room and you're under 50 and you're interacting with your peers, there's a high percentage chance you are going to meet Micah at work tomorrow morning. Most say that this spiritual but not religious is a pushback to organized religion, a questioning of institutions and leaders and the commingling of religious worship with political posturing that dominates our landscape. And yet, far too often, what we see is not a pushback, a proper pushback, to some of those trappings, I would argue, but rather a commingling of some spiritual biblical language with man-made religion that results in a lack of gospel understanding and worship of the one true God at all. Andy Smith, in his book on Charles Taylor and the secular age, leads with this illustration. Imagine that you take a group of, uh, group of 12 to 15 students or young adults from a church in the Bible Belt South on a mission trip over spring break to a city like Portland or Seattle. And you're going to these cities to do evangelism. And because the Bible Belt South has still been trained in certain language for how to speak the gospel, you lead with a question that was very common in many of our churches growing up. If you were standing before God today, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And Smith says, what you are going to find in Seattle or in Portland isn't wrong answers to that question. What you are going to find are blank stares because no one is asking that question at all. That question in a post-Christian mind isn't even on the radar screen for those seeking to know how to interact with a God. And so, when faced with a spiritual but not religious climate, most of us that have grown up in the world of Christendom, don't know how to interact or how to engage with those who have no trappings for spirituality at all. In fact, far, far often, very often, it's the, the difference in those of us that grew up with ubiquitous technology and every form and fashion in our lives, and those of you that inherited it at some point in your 40s or 50s. Writers call this digital natives versus digital immigrants. Digital natives that grew up with technology everywhere, this is the water the fish swims in, and they just know how to operate in it. But for you who are digital immigrants and are trying to train yourself to what is that funny little internet thing going on, it is a massive challenge. And I think this presents the point at which most of our efforts at gospel communication breaks down. Because many of you who are listening this morning grew up in a world where Christianity was your native language. 
and working with, neighboring with, having kids who are involved in a world that is spiritual but not religious presents some real challenges for how do we have fluid gospel conversations. So I want to give you five points of application for how we can be conversant in a world that is spiritual but not religious. What do gospel conversations look like in a Micah-like world? First, let me suggest that you can expect a certain guilt or shame consciousness. Now, I want to plumb that a bit because what I did not say is you can expect a certain sin consciousness. A certain sin consciousness is what you would expect if you lead with the question of a God standing at heaven and asking, why should I let you in? Now, in the dominant world, there is a certain sin consciousness. I am morally at odds with a God, and I've got to figure out how to make myself right. In a post-Christian context, that is most often not true. But we can, as we see in Micah's story, though we're not told why, expect a certain level of anxiety about one's experience in life. A certain sense that I've done things that are out of bounds. I need to make things right. And in a millennial audience and many who are groomed in a post-Christian world, there's a bent towards appeasing this guilt consciousness. Now again, it's not appeased before a holy, righteous God, but there's a sense at which my life feels guilty, and I've got to do certain things in order to appease that guilt. Whether that's animal advocacy, certain, I mean, you can name the practice, there's a guilt-shame consciousness that's attempted to be appeased by certain actions. So, for those of us that are wanting to have fluid gospel conversations in a post-Christian world, we should ask the question, where is guilt or shame evidenced in the person to whom I am speaking, and how can I redirect that to the only true guilt and shame remover? Okay. So if I live with a certain guilt and shame consciousness, and my actions to appease it don't actually remove my guilt and shame, it provides me a point of contact to point to the one who removes sins as far as the east is from the west through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you should expect the same words to have vastly different meanings. In our text this morning, priests, worship, Levites, all words that would have been previously associated with the God of Israel are now redirected and misdirected. And we should, as intentional gospel conversationalists, Expect the words that we grew up with, with certain inherent meaning, to have shifted in the minds of our hearers. So I used one earlier. What do those who are hearing you speak of your involvement in a local church think when you use the word church? What do those who are feasting on social media, modern cable news outlets, 
What is the perspective that they have when you say church? Do they think in their minds the same things you think of as church being church? Probably not. When you speak of an afterlife, in a world that is spiritual but not religious, most of those whom you talk to are going to be incredibly comfortable with an afterlife. They're just not going to be comfortable with heaven or hell as that afterlife. They may even be comfortable with Jesus as a guru, but certainly not a Lord. The same words, and if we're not careful, here's the, fear, here's the danger. We just drop the terminology thinking we've checked off our evangelism conversation. We end feeling good that we've clearly, com- we've clearly communicated the gospel when in fact what our hearers have heard is something radically different than that. Right? Again, to use a parenting illustration, you tell your kids, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and then you, a- after the fact, what did you hear me say? Right? Because there's an awareness that what you thought you said and what went into the head of that seven-year-old can be radically different things as demonstrated by the actions that follow. Did you hear? Now, you can't awkwardly do that with your neighbor, coworker, or friend, can you? Like, what did you hear me say? Tell the gospel back to me. You can't do that. But what you can do is know going in, if I'm not careful, I'm going to communicate something about Jesus or church or gospel that's loaded with concepts that I'm really familiar with, and they're going to load it with concepts that are really aberrant to what I believe, which requires us to know the gospel well enough to be able to define our terms and use them well, that we can do the kind of thing that Paul does in Acts 17. I see you got a shrine over there to an unknown, unknown God, What you worship as unknown, let me declare to you as truth and put words to unknown or aberrant worship practices. Thirdly, we should expect individualized and privatized practices of misdirected worship. We should expect individualized and privatized. So what I mean by that is It's mine, my relationship with God, or however I want to define that God, and it ain't none of your business, okay? So not only is it mine, but you're not in, okay? And you're certainly not in enough to critique the direction of my worship practices, Which then explains the rise of things. I was reading, this is from Newsweek this week. Whether it be spell casting, tarot, astrology, meditation or trance, herbalism, these traditions offer offer tangible ways for people to enact change in their lives. For a generation that grew up in a world of big industry, environmental destruction, large and oppressive governments, toxic social structures, all of which seem too big to change, this can be incredibly attractive. They write, and I quote, it's very different from the way we usually work and live and date, where everything is hyper-mediated and rational. There is a belief vacuum. We go to work, to a bar, to dinner, on a date with no semblance of meaning. And then, conclusion, astrology is a way out of it. 
a way of putting yourselves in the context of thousands of years of history and the universe. So in a world that feels incredibly disorienting, I'm going to invent an individualized and privatized way to create my own shrines that allow me to worship and engage with this God. This then suggests that community and church are going to immediately position one with bumpers up. Like, in an age where it used to be quite common to invite people to church as the first interaction with the things of God, you mean to tell me that you want me to come to a place where someone is all up in my business that's associated with buildings and programs and leadership and institutions, those are all the very things that I hate. So a simple invite to church that worked years ago will no longer do so. Pack-a-pew Sundays are not a thing in a culture that's spiritual but not religious. You are going to have to invest a ton of relational capital with someone to get them in the door to an institutional church because they are going to question it from the very outset. So we expect that. Fourthly, we should expect work and reward to be the means of atonement. Exactly what we see Micah do in this text. If I do, I will get. If I do these things, if I have a Levite as my priest in my home, then I'm going to get the blessing of God. Now, certainly, no one who is spiritual but not religious is going to articulate it as a means of atonement, but that's exactly what it is. A means of making me right with God or the universe or my fellow man. If I love people, if I pursue justice and equality, if I care for others above myself, then in the final analysis, the Lord will prosper me. I don't know who the Lord is, and I'm not really sure what his prospering looks like. But these are the means of making myself right with the world, both in this life and in the next. Then fifthly, we should expect the gospel of grace to seem implausible. We should expect the gospel of grace to seem implausible. We should not lose heart when those to whom we are communicating reject us outright. Because no one who consistently does things that are right in their own eyes likes to be told that they're wrong. No one. No one likes to be redirected in their worship. No one likes to be reminded that they do not merely have a guilt-shame consciousness, but they have a sin offense against a holy God. These types of gospel truths will face an implausibility structure in the minds to, whom, of, to those to whom we are communicating, which is both bad news and it is really good news. Because, church, we should be reminded that if gospel conversation is going to have any effect and if regeneration and conversion is actually going to result, it is going to be by means of the power of God at work in an individual's life to take them from darkness into light, from blind to sight. When we pray, when, when we pray, we remember 
that not like Sam, we don't merely Samson end our lives blind and deceived in sin, but rather this is the starting point for all humanity. We are born into the world blind and we clamor about in darkness as a blind man with no assistance. And without an external means of transformation, the blind will never see clearly. And so to all the Micahs of the world, as is true for the Samsons of the world, the only hope is the Spirit of God coming upon them in power, breaking the shackles from their eyes and causing them to see the light, the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ that they would have a testimony much like the man born blind in Jesus' day that says, I don't know what happened, but I was blind, and now I see. Try as we might, we can inform ourselves, we can learn how to navigate a post-Christian culture to not be needlessly offensive, but the power to enact conversion comes from the hand of a living God. And it is to that God that we owe, if we're here in this room, we owe our salvation because it is not as if we had little flickers of insight that God illuminated into light. We were blind, deaf, and damned, and God transformed our hearts by the power of his Spirit and gave us life. And that is the only hope your spiritual but not religious child, your spiritual but not religious co-worker, neighbor, or friend has in coming to the light of the truth of the gospel. So let's pray for that as we close this morning. Would you join me? Before the band comes and leads us in a final song, would you privately where you are this morning, would you pray for the name of a Micah-like individual in your life? Cousin, neighbor, friend, co-worker, someone who exemplifies the spiritual but not religious, would you pray on two fronts? First, would you pray that God would grant them salvation, that he would illuminate their eyes to see Christ clearly, and that he would break through the mess that they've made of their man-made religion? And then secondly, would you pray that God would give you grace to grow in communicating the gospel clearly in a post-Christian culture, that we would speak the truths of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and resurrected, with clarity and conviction by the power of God's Spirit.